The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Should we look into to God's Word? You ready for it now? All right, let's do it. Open up to Genesis 46. That's where we left off in our series, God Meant It for Good, Seeing God's Hand in Every Circumstance. This is where we left off last week, or a couple weeks ago, rather, Joseph finally had uh, revealed himself to his brothers, and now, in this chapter, Joseph's dad, Jacob, and he will be reunited. And so we're going to get to it, but I want to ask this question as we begin. Who drove in traffic this week? On your commute? Maybe you got stuck behind an accident? Some of you... New Braunfels particularly gets crowded in the summer, doesn't it? It just kind of balloons with uh, people here as they're all coming to go to Schlitterbahn and the rivers and things. But now let me ask this. Who loves to drive in traffic? Nobody. Of course not, right? Like, are you crazy? Why are you asking such a ridiculous question? Why not? We don't like it because we have a destination to get to. And all these cars are impeding my progress. And that frustrates us. That gets us upset. And life, too, can seem like driving in traffic. We have places to go, deadlines to meet, goals to achieve, desires to fulfill, projects to complete, and circumstances get in the way. People stand in our way. Somebody else's decision affects what we want to do. And we can fixate on those immediate surroundings, the things that are in front of us. We get frustrated because we're short-sighted. When what we need to do is to take the long view. So we're driving in traffic. We need to take our perspective off the cars and the crazies around us and remember the destination where we are headed. Here's the passage or the point of the passage today. I want to give it to you. Then we're going to read it. We're going to go a little bit deeper in. I want you to write this down. You can write it in your Bible as we've been doing at the top of the chapter and in your notes. But it is simply this. Take the long view of God's plan. Take the long view of God's plan. And this helps us understand our passage. I put it before you so you remember so it'll help filter in as we read it. This family, as I said, is finally being reunited after 20 years of separation. Jacob, the dad, will see his son Joseph, whom he has thought dead for 20 plus years. And for nine chapters, God has been providentially orchestrating these events leading to this reunion and the preservation of this promised family throughout a devastating famine. He's taken the traffic, the congestion, and he's created a pathway through it to get to this place. Let's read it now. Genesis 46 says this. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. 
They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel. You ready for this? We're going to read it. Who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jacob, Zoar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jaleel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padamaran, together with his daughter Dana. Although his sons and his daughters numbered, altogether rather, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, and Haggai, Shuni, Ezbon, Eri, Erodai, and Areli. The sons of Ashner, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, his, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppam, Huppam, and Ard, these are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Husham. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who are in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The reading of God's word. Anyone fall asleep during the, the genealogy? Now, what a great passage of scripture here. Now that they have been reunited, we see this long view of what God has been doing in this family coming to fruition and even beyond this, what God is going to do through this family. And so this is instructive for us in order to take the long view of God's plan 
In order to take the long view of God's plan, here's what we must do. We must first seek God's direction. We must first seek God's direction. Did you notice this in uh, the first seven verses? Here, Israel, which uh, it kind of goes back and forth. Did you catch that? Israel and Jacob are the same person. Israel is Jacob's covenant name. Jacob is just his birth name. But God gave Jacob this name, Israel, as a sign of the covenant. That he was part of God's chosen family that the promise would be given to and passed down through. So Israel takes his journey. Now, remember the, the backstory here. A couple weeks ago, we saw that the brothers were uh, introduced, that J, uh, Joseph, rather, too many J names, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and now and sent them back to the family and told their dad that Joseph, your son, is alive. And you're like, almost passed out. This is incredible. This, this is mind-blowing. But then when he sees all the wagons, all the provisions that Pharaoh had sent, he believes them. And now they are beginning to make the journey to Egypt. But a part of the covenant that God had made with Israel and their family was that this was the promised land where uh, Israel and his sons were all living, that they would have a land, that they would have an offspring, and that they would be a blessing from God to the nations around them. And so this is kind of a big deal for them to leave, especially Israel in his old age. He is an elderly man. So any sort of trip to leave is not a great idea. So what does Israel do? He seeks God's direction. And it's, it's important for us to note here where he goes to Beersheba. You can actually go there. It's still a place. I've been there back uh, 11 years ago now, in 2007, I went to Israel. It's in the southern part of, of Israel in the place called the Negev or the, the wilderness, the desert of southern uh, Judah. And there is a well there. Beersheba means well of seven or well of oath. Be'er in, in Hebrew just means well. Sheba means either seven or oath. And so you can go there, but it's significant. It was a strategic place because what is the most important resource in a desert-like climate? Water. And so a well is a very important place, especially if you are in the agriculture business. And so this came into their family way back in Genesis 21. It was really the first land that Abraham purchased in the whole promised land. He had come and dwelled there. But in this whole scene in, in Genesis 21 uh, with Abimelech, a, a Canaanite leader of that time, he purchased that for seven lambs. This well here, that's why it's called the well of seven or the well of oath. And they made this oath that this belongs to Abraham. And it's there. Not only does he purchase it, not only is it a strategic place physically because of the water that is there, but it is also a strategic place which God meets with his people. God meets with Abraham there. Later in Genesis 26 then, Abraham's son Isaac goes and he lives there and he meets with the Lord. The Lord appears to, to Isaac, reiterates the covenant, uh, subsequently passing it down through Isaac. And then it is there that Isaac leaves, departs in search of a wife in chapter 28. When he goes to marry his wife, Rebecca. And now decades have passed since then. But now, this next generation, Isaac's son Jacob, returns to this place that God has met to with his father and his grandfather, seeking God's direction before he leaves the promised land, going to Egypt. 
And so God, what does God do? He speaks to him in a vision of the night, repeats his name. Look at verse 2 with me, and he says, here I am in return. And in verse 3 and 4, he tells him, it's okay to go. He speaks directly. And interesting enough, in our passage, in our, our, our uh, series here, Genesis 37 to 50, this is the only time that God directly speaks. All the other places, God is just at work providentially, moving, orchestrating events in their life. God is clearly with them. The Lord is near to Joseph and his brothers and his dad. But here is the only time in this told out from Genesis 37 to 50 where God directly speaks and is giving Jacob permission, permission to leave. The last time God spoke to, to Israel directly was back in chapter 35, before our told up, before all this, when he gives Jacob his new name, Israel. And so now he's here seeking God's direction. God in his kindness appears, says, I will make, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Isn't that what he wants? God's presence? Do we want to go anywhere where God is not at work? Absolutely not. And so he goes, and only after this, then, what does verse 5, then Jacob set out from Beersheba. God gives him permission, God gives him the direction that he's seeking for, and he heads down and he takes all his family, sons, 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 grandchildren, all the offspring he takes with him. You know, I just told you that we had uh, this 18, maybe 19 hour journey to and from Wisconsin, is a little crazy. And we sought direction on a which way to go when we go there. Y'all do that? Y'all have a GPS or use Apple Maps, things like that? You ever use Waze? You familiar with that? W-A-Z-E? If you haven't used it, highly recommend it. Especially if you have like driving around Austin, other places with traffic, I would highly recommend it because it's kind of an open forum thing. And so people can, as they're driving, they can report police. So you know when to slow down. Um, they report uh, congestion. They report these things. And based on the data that uh, non-drivers, passengers, if you're driving, you don't be texting, putting stuff in there. But uh, you can report that. And based on those things, they uh, will reroute uh, you and all that. Well, a few times, we were actually using our iPhones with our Apple Maps and with Waze, and you can actually have them both going at the same time, and then it's like this little competition. They tell you, Apple Maps is like, oh, about two seconds faster, and they'll say, you know, proceed ahead or two miles exit, and then Waze will come along and say, in two miles, you'll exit up here, or if it's in traffic, then one's telling you to go one way and one's another way, and we were using my wife's phone, and her Apple Maps is set to like this British dude voice, and then you have this, uh, you know, like the female secretary voice that Waze uses, Man, when you're driving, it's all kinds of confusing. Who's telling me where to go? But we seek direction as to where we go. Now, our GPS tools, are they all-knowing? No, they're not all-knowing. They're very helpful, aren't they? Sometimes they lead us astray. Sometimes I'm a little uh, uh, skeptical, and I think I know my way around a little better, and uh, usually doesn't go all that well for me. But you get the perspective, right? You get the illustration here. And this, beloved, is for us. As we need perspective, as we find ourselves in places where God is calling us to do something, as we have major decisions before us, and even just minor decisions before us, what, where to work, where to live, should we make this purchase, should we get involved with this thing, should we put our kids in this club and get them involved in this sport, as we do that, we need to keep the long view in front of us, and we do not proceed until we have sought God's direction. 
This is instructive for us as we want to keep what is most important in front of us. To get our heads above the chaos, above the daily things that are going on in our life. The traffic that congests things up. As we want to keep perspective, as we want to prioritize correctly, as we want to live vertically for the glory of God, we must first seek God's direction. And so how do we do this? How do we do this? Do we go to a sacred space and wait a vision in the night? Say, no, that's not God's normative way of communicating with his people. And he said, but it's in the Bible, it's what he did. Well, sure, but it's recorded because it was abnormal. And it really only happens every 40 to 50 years in, a, in these people's lives. It is not the normative way of God speaking with his people. The normal way, God's normal way that he is communicating with us, guiding us, directing us, teaching us what is right and wrong, which way to go, is through his word and through his people. This is God's normal way. We have God's word. That's why we come to church on Sundays because we want wisdom. We want to hear from the Lord. That's why we go to a small group. That's why we uh, spend personal time in prayer in the word before the Lord as he speaks to us, as he teaches us what is right and what is wrong. We get counsel from other people. It's part of the beauty of walking in the body of Christ. It's how God has designed it. That we can counsel and teach and give wisdom to one another according to God's word. Not according to our own opinions. Not necessarily according to our own experience. But according to the authority of God's word. It's why we love biblical soul care. It's why we're committed to living and walking with one another. And so as you have decisions before you, as you have things uh, that you are trying to seek wisdom, maybe you're torn about, maybe there's uh, multiple good options, and you're wondering, Lord, what is it that I should do? Which direction, which choice should I make? Ask these questions. These aren't exhaustive, but start here and see what comes of it. Ask this question. First, have I read God's word? Have I genuinely sought God's word as to what direction he might have? Now, there might not be a specific story that directly relates, but the principles are there. Proverbs is full of all kinds of wisdom that would teach us where to go. And if you don't know, if you don't know where to read, ask a fellow believer. Where does God's word speak to this situation? Ask the second question. How much time have I prayed about this? Have you just simply asked God? So God, what should I do here? What is right? What is wrong? What is decision? God, help me to, no, I don't want to rush into this. Is this right? Is this good for my child, my son, my daughter? Will this be good for my marriage? Will this pull me away from other things that are more important? And just simply pray and ask God, how much time have you prayed about it? Third, have I asked my small group for prayer and counsel? Those people that know me best, that are committed to my spiritual good, have I brought it up to them? Have I asked my small group for prayer and counsel? Would you join me in this? Would, have you experienced these same things? Have I talked with my small group leader about it? Not that they're uniquely connected to the Lord in any way that you are. But they are mature and godly men and women that lead our small groups, that love you. Have you talked to them? Have you set up a time to just meet with them one-on-one? -on -one? That's what SGL means, by the way, not like seagulls or anything. It's just small group leader. That's right. Have I asked my small group leader? 
And last, do I need to fast about it? Y'all familiar with fasting? Oh, I had done this. It's a unique thing. Major decisions. We see this in the scriptures. Major decisions are made after prayer and fasting. In a season where we give up food as a way to say, God, I am dependent upon you for this answer. I am dependent, more dependent than I am on food for my physical sustenance. I am dependent upon you and your direction to make this decision. And so there are times where we should pray about big things. This is, we see this through the book of Acts as elders are installed, that the, that the current elders there, they prayed and they fasted before the Lord, before this massive decision was made and somebody was bestowed with this office. This is so important. This means so much. There's so much at stake. To pray and fast as a way to say, God, we need your help and direction in this. So there are big decisions. There are things that we should pray and fast about, maybe uh, regularly in an ongoing way or just uh, for a season. Praying and fasting. Have we prayed? Have we read God's word? These are some uh, ways in which God will speak to us as we seek God's direction, as we seek to have the long view, as we seek to know what God is up to and prioritize rightly in our life. This is what Jacob is doing here, Israel is doing. Before he leaves, he is seeking God's face. He's wanting to know, where do we go? And so he seeks God's direction. He gets the okay. The green light is there. He gathers his family and he goes. How many people does he go with? 70, we're told. 70. See, not only does Jacob seek God's direction, he also, here's our second point, counts God's blessings. He counts God's blessings. And you're like, what? What are we here with? This is a genealogy. I heard a few grumbles as I was about to read it. A few chuckles at my mispronunciations, I'm sure. But how many, here's, let's be honest for a second, how many as you've gotten into like a chronological Bible reading through the year or something, and you, that whole plan got derailed in the genealogies of the Old Testament? Anybody? Yeah, like, yeah that's, that's me. That's right. How many of you, when you get to portions like this, you just kind of read over it? You're just like, all right, this goes all the way down there. Skip into verse 28. Yeah. We do that. We do that. But I hope to, just in a bit, I read it on purpose, but I hope to give you a little help in this. But why is it here? Why is it in the midst of this section? We have this narrative, this story. He meets with God, and then these 20 verses of names, and then goes back to their meeting. Why is it here? Especially because it's different than the Toldots. Now remember, in the book of Genesis, there are 10 sections. All right, 10 sections, 10 episodes that begin really with genealogies. And these are the generations of blank. Remember that back in 37, when we began, that's how it started. This is the generation, or these are the generations of Jacob. And then it lists out some people, and then there's a whole narrative. And so Moses, as he's writing this book, uses that as the break. It's like as you're reading a book with chapters, that's his way of saying, okay, next chapter in the story. That's why we began in 37, because it's the last chapter of the book of Genesis. But this is not that one of those. This is a different genealogy. And so why is it here? Is it just to give us some name ideas? I mean, those of you that are still, your family's still growing, you're you know, looking at this and maybe, yeah, Cade's like, Hoopham Hennessy, that'd be a good name, huh? <laughs> That's right. Yob, 
Ard, some of these names are pretty, uh, pretty cool. The wives are saying, don't get any wise ideas, right? No, it's not just here. Is it just here for historical reasons? I mean, there's some pretty cool things here. As you read through this, the names that are listed here, uh, verse 11, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, he's the ancestor of Moses. This as you keep reading, you'll find that he's, uh, he's in, Moses will come from Kohath's line. Is it just there for that? There's some uh, connections here. As you read through it, it doesn't necessarily come out uh, as much in our English. But uh, look at verse 12 then. There's this, he says, the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hemuel. And that just little uh, word there, it's unique from the rest of genealogies. That's something. When you're reading through a genealogy, look for the abnormalities. Look, because there's usually like a cadence. They're, they're usually uh, written in a certain way, uh, a pattern or something to communicate more than just the names that are there. And so when there's something like that, that draws our attention to this is important. And why is that important? Go back to chapter 38 and we see Judah's sons. Judah is the one whom the promise, the covenant will go through. It's through Israel. It's going to be passed through Judah. And then Judah's sons, which one? Perez and Hezron. Just draws our attention there. Moses, who knows this, who's writing it after the fact, is drawing our attention to this is the messianic line. So there's some historical significance here. There's historical uh, importance as, a, as this family tree is growing and as especially Hebrew or Israelite readers would read it throughout the generations, they can see these things going. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. All of these names here is proof of God's faithfulness to his covenant. The reason that this is included in this passage The reason that this breaks up the narrative is to give proof that God has been faithful to his covenant of offspring. Just two generations ago, it was Abram and Sarai, old people with no kids, and God made that promise. And then they had how many children? One son. One son, Isaac, who then had a couple sons. And now, just a few generations later, that family went from three to now Is God faithful or what? And the Israelite readers seeing this would know that when they left the Exodus then, generations later, when they were leaving and they, after a whole bunch of things happened throughout uh, between this passage and then their slavery in Egypt just a few generations later and then their departure and going through the Red Sea and all that and they move back to the promised land, they are by some estimates two to three million strong. Is God faithful to his promises? Or what? And so it draws our attention here as we read this genealogy. It is here to point out God is faithful. See, we can too easily fixate on the negative things, on the chaos around us, on the traffic around us, but we need to trash those things and we need to count our blessings. Count our blessings. That is what Moses is doing here. He's counting all of these names of God's faithfulness. What an instructive thing for us. Even in the midst of our circumstances, as we're trying to keep our eyes on the Lord. To take our eyes off all the negative things, all the chaotic things, all the the circumstances that are beyond our control, and to count God's blessings. Are you familiar with this old song? Maybe some of you uh, grew up singing it. Do you remember the song, Count Your Blessings? The Gaithers used to sing it. 
Here, let's listen to it for a second. I heard some of you singing along with it. Some of you know that song? Did you maybe grow up singing that? Yeah, we did in, in my church as well. And so this is, this is what's happening here. In the midst of this genealogy is a literal counting of Jacob's blessings. All these family members that God has given him. Hear these verses from Psalm 77. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. See, this is a discipline of God's people. That we count our blessings, that we uh, remember and meditate upon what God has done in our life. That we recount God's faithfulness, his good deeds to us. And so we ask this question, how has God been faithful to you? What, are, what has he done in your life? Are you keeping record of it? Maybe you keep a journal. Maybe you keep a scrapbook. Maybe posts on social media are a way of recording and posting of God's blessing in your life. Some of those things are big and obvious. Other times his work is less noticeable. But is it? But is it really less noticeable? Maybe it's because we're not looking. Maybe it's because we're not counting. Maybe it's because we're too concerned about ourselves and our circumstances. We're more interested in posting selfies than testimonies. And of recounting all that God has done in our life in the midst of even the worst of circumstances. Let's turn these tendencies around in our life. Let's trash the record of wrongs, and let's record what God has done. Can we be a people who are good at that? Can we be a people who are good at telling the story of what God has done? And maybe when it's hard, here's a way that you can remind yourself. Go and read one of the Old Testament's genealogies. How's that going to encourage me? Well, let's redeem it instead of letting it derail our Bible reading when we are having a hard time seeing what God has done in our life and is doing in our life. Let's go to a passage like this, try to get over all the mispronunciations and let it be God's reminder of his goodness and his blessing in your life and begin to record one by one, the things that God has done. And so as we take the long view, as we try to keep our priorities right on what God is doing in our life, not getting derailed by the circumstances around us, not getting caught up in the traffic, we seek God's direction, we count God's blessings, and then finally, our chapter here ends in joy, and it teaches us to walk the low road. To walk the low road. How glorious is this last section of our chapter? How glorious is this family reunion in verse 28 and following? You know, if we put ourselves in the sandals here, we, it would bring us to tears. To, to experience this joy of this family reunion. Judah here is the leader of the family in verse 28. He leads them into, the prom, or into Egypt. And Joseph here makes the plans leading them into Goshen. And in this region, Goshen, it's, it's significant here. It's in northern Egypt. It's in what's known as the uh, Nile Delta. 
as the Nile River would go and uh, empty into the Mediterranean Sea, it would bring along, as it goes, it would bring along all the nutrients of the soil. And so as it would flood, it would leave all those rich nutrients in that area, making the soil rich and fertile and perfect for agriculture. Perfect for growing, there would be lush, rich grass for the, the livestock and the animals. And so he's bringing them here, leading them to this specific place, because what's happening across the globe at this time? It's a famine. It's a famine. And so if anywhere there is fertile soil, it is in this place, Goshen. And now the father and son come. They meet together after decades of being apart. And we have another. Isn't Genesis just so good at these understatements? They present themselves, they fall on his neck, and they weep together on their necks a good while. I mean, we can't even imagine what's going on here, right? I mean, it's just hard to even put ourselves in, in, in those shoes. I mean, some of us have lost children or those close to us in very tragic circumstances and have gone a long time believing that they were dead and now in their old age realizing all that was a lie and this son of his is alive. You think there would be some embracing and some hugging and some weeping for a good while? You better believe it. You better believe it. And we're not given insight into what was said. We're not given insight as to what's going on here. We just get this small glimpse of this beautiful picture of this father and son, this family being reunited. But even that is not the point of this section. Israel's so elated, he says, now let me die. He's, he's like, my life could be over. This is the happiest that I could ever be. And Joseph goes right on in verse 31. Look at it with me. Verse 31 and he just goes right into giving directions, telling his brothers and the whole household, all 70 folks that just came. And he says, he gives them instructions as to what's going to happen. And in other words, he says, we're going to go to Pharaoh and we're going to tell him that we are shepherds. And the last verse says, how do the Egyptians view shepherds? They're abomination. They're despised. They are despised. And so this, maybe you, like me, I've got a little question mark in here because when I first read it, I was like, what in the world? Why would he do that? Here we have this great happy moment. This family's been reunited. And Joseph's like, first words out of it's like, okay, now we got to go to Pharaoh. I'm planning here and uh, we're going to tell him that, well, basically, you're going to hate us. Is this like some sort of sick revenge now? Okay, we've got all the happiness going on. Yeah, hey, Dad, great to see you again, brothers. Welcome back. Now we're going to go to Pharaoh and uh, we're going to tell him that we are shepherds. Is this punishment? Is it revenge? What do you think? It's not. It's not. It's very strategic and all a part of God's plan through the hands of Joseph to preserve his people. Because by telling Pharaoh that these, his family is shepherds, it would then allow them to go and settle in Goshen where the, fer, the soil was fertile 
and so that the family could there prosper and in essence grow bigger than the 70 people. This is where they would get a great start on that two to three million from this 70 and it would set them apart to flourish where they would not be intermixed in the Egyptian culture but they could be out here in this fertile soil out in these, these, these rich farmlands and could grow and survive in the midst of the famine. See, they are walking the low road, the low road of culture to be elevated by the Lord. They are taking the, the humble route because it is the humble that they know that God sees and lifts up. And as we take the long view, it always goes via the low road. Where we as God's people, we are humble in nature. That we are uh, not seeking the spotlight. Where we are not clamoring for attention. And trying to climb the ladder as quickly as we can. And now this doesn't mean that we're not ambitious. Is Joseph very ambitious here? You better believe it. But he's taking the low road. The low road of culture that they might be elevated. Here in central Texas, where do we buy houses? We buy them up out of the floodplain, right? Because when it floods, it floods. And so we buy a house that's high up because we know this fundamental truth. That water always finds the lowest place. Kids, what is it? What is that? What's the force there at play that's taking water to the lowest place? It's gravity, right? Gravity's taking water to the lowest place. Water always finds the lowest place, and beloved living water always finds the lowest man or woman. And it is to the humble, the contrite in spirit, that God looks upon. He exalts the humble of heart. He comes when we humble ourselves, He lifts us up to see the long view. This is the way, this is the low road is the way of the Christian because it is the way of Christ. Because it is the way of Christ, our Christian life, this is the gospel, our Christian life starts this way by taking the low road. It is how we are saved by lowering ourselves before the Lord and saying, God, you are big and I am not. You are holy, you are perfect and I am not. And I repent of that sin and I believe on Christ. It is a way that is the low road. Not saying I haven't worked, I have nothing to boast, I have nothing that I have done or can bring to the table that would contribute to my salvation. The Christian life begins with the low road of humbling ourselves before the Lord and it continues this way. By humbling ourselves before God, submitting to his authority and his word and before one another by laying down our preferences, by making room for other people, by walking the low road in comfort of choosing to be reproached and to be persecuted above and beyond being right or being cleared out there, which involves giving credit to others because we know that in due time, our reward will come, won't it? When we humble ourselves before the Lord, we have the hope that God will one day lift us up. Maybe not on this earth, but definitely in glory. The hope of glory that we as Christians have. We walk the low road. Sometimes we don't know what that means. Sometimes we don't know what that involves. And I'm not saying that we just are beat up and we just become doormats. But we choose to, to walk the low road above looking for the spot. Christ did this. He walked the low road by leaving heaven to become man and live on earth and to die that horrible death that we might live, right? 
And he did it keeping the long view of redemption before him. He did it for the joy set before him, Hebrews said. And that's how he navigated the traffic and the chaos of, of living the human life. He was betrayed, he was beaten, but eventually he was reunited with his father after accomplishing the salvation for which he came for his beloved. Amen? That's what God did. That's what God in Christ Jesus did by walking the low road. This is how we keep right perspective. This is how we walk through situations and circumstances that are difficult. This is how we walk through conflict, by keeping the big picture in sight, seeking God's direction, counting our blessings, and walking the low road. And this ultimately, beloved, is what we remember and what we celebrate each time we take communion. And so we're going to uh, close this uh, time. We're going to close our service now. Uh, we'll sing after this, but we're going to uh, take uh, communion. And this is something, this is, this is beautiful. As the worship team, you can come up and uh, our ushers can get ready to distribute the elements. But all of these things, this was the long view. This is what Christ did on our behalf. This is what we remember. This is what we celebrate as we uh, come to the Lord's table. Isn't God so uh, kind to give us this reminder? Didn't God have the long view in mind as he uh, initiated and instigated this reminder, knowing that we are a forgetful people? And so he gave us baptism as that initial ordinance to remind us of that, that we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and then as a means to, uh, to remind us and to celebrate it uh, uh, in the ongoing nature of our life, we celebrate this through taking these elements. And so, Kate, why don't we, let's bring the pulpit down here and uh, um, our ushers can come forward.